I'm so thankful for the opportunity to be here with you this afternoon. Some of you will remember that you had an opportunity um, just before we planted, actually. Tim encouraged you, and you took up a special offering for our church, and you raised uh, several thousand dollars for our church plant that in the Lord's providence was crucial in establishing our financial stability early on so that we were able to bring on staff with me a man who is uh, a tremendous help and encouragement and a blessing to me uh, that's ministered to me greatly but also is primarily first and foremost an evangelist who spends a lot of time in the community sharing the gospel with people in the neighborhood and training the saints in our church for the work of evangelism as well and encouraging people in evangelism. So the gospel is being proclaimed throughout Don Mills because of you. So thank you. That, um, that has been a huge ministry to me and to our church and to our community. So thank you. I'm glad to be here and to thank you to give praise to God for those things. Um, I'm also glad to be here because I want to tell you something about your pastor. And I was thinking he wasn't going to be here. So I would planned on saying this without him here. Um, but one thing I did want to say about Tim, there are actually two things I want to tell you about Tim, one of which I don't think he knows, and that is that he is a man who is greatly respected by other pastors. Your pastor is a man who other pastors look up to. There are, in, in, in our circles, in the pastors in Toronto, the pastors whom I know, there are guys who are movers and shakers, who get all kinds of things done, and they know everybody, and they plant a gazillion churches, and they do a million things. Um, and that's awesome. I praise the Lord for that. But the, the man and the men who garner the most respect from other pastors are the men who faithfully, consistently, deliberately commune with God. Because that shows. I mean, it's not like, not like Moses that his face shines when, when he comes to our meetings. Um, but it does show through his demeanor and his character and his prayers that your pastor is a godly man who other pastors look up to and are encouraged by and strengthened by. So as you support him, you are actually supporting pastors throughout the city and beyond as well. The other thing that's significant about Tim is, again, just as I get to meet all kinds of other pastors, it never ceases to amaze me how often pastors complain about their church, complain about their people. I don't get that. I love meeting guys like Tim because his love for you is transparent and obvious and his passion, his desire to see you advance in godliness and to see the gospel progress in you as individuals. Your pastor is a man who cares for you deeply and loves you. So you are a blessed church. I just want you to be reminded of that and to be encouraged by that. The Lord loves you. He's given you a faithful under-shepherd to care for you. And I am thankful to be here with you this morning. I want to... Turn our attention to 1 Peter chapter 5 this afternoon. So if you can turn in your Bible to 1 Peter chapter 5, I will read for us. I'm going to read the first 11 verses of 1 Peter 5, and we're going to focus specifically in our time this afternoon in verses 5 to 7. 1 Peter chapter 5, beginning in verse 1. This is what Holy Scripture says. So I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed, shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you, 
not for shameful gain, but eagerly. Not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him, because he cares for you. Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray. Father, as we come, we come to your word as people who desperately need to hear. But by our own strength, we're deaf. We come as people who desperately need to see, but in our own strength, we are blind. Here is food, but we cannot open our mouths and eat unless you, Father, feed us from your word. I pray, Father, that you would open up this word to us this afternoon. That you would help us to glory in your greatness. To rejoice in your supremacy to find our lives in your sovereign reign. Work the truth deep in us and bring fruit for your name's sake. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. When I was young, I didn't like school. It's a bad confession, right? I shouldn't say that. There's children listening. Stop. I was a rambunctious young lad, and I did not like school. I didn't like sitting still in class. I didn't like taking tests, especially. I was a sinner. Lack of self-control. Now, who am I kidding? I still don't like the idea of taking tests. I don't like the idea of taking tests because you have to know an answer in a specific moment. This is a, it's a challenge, but... If I had the choice in school, I would much rather write an essay. 
If you write an essay, you've got time to think about it. You've got time to mull it over. You can go find people that are smarter than you, right? And you quote them. You get these big, long quotes from these really smart people, and you throw it in your paper, and you're saying something smart all of a sudden because they already did the work. I like essays. That's easier. But sometimes tests are unavoidable. They're coming. Can't get away from it. Some tests are better than others, though. My favorite... I think probably some of you will find the same. My favorite was always multiple choice, multiple choice tests. Ever, any of you like that? I'm like, if I get in there and I got no idea what the answer is, at least I got like four options. I just pick one of those and I got like a 25% chance of being on. That's my favorite kind of test. But even with multiple choice tests, you find that some are hard where others are easy. Some multiple choice questions are hard. Mother's Day is coming up, and all of you guys are planning on buying flowers for your wife or for your mother. You need to know, which is the longest-lasting flower? What's the best one to buy? You know you're buying a flower, but you've got to narrow down your options. Which one's going to be the best? Or the best-tasting hamburger in Toronto. If you live downtown, you say the Burger Priest. If you live you know, on the west side, you say Apache Burger. You're on the east side, you've got to say Johnny's. Depends where you live. Your, your options are limited. There's a few places... But still, it's hard to tell. I've eaten at a lot of them, and there's good burgers to be had in lots of places. Some multiple-choice questions, though, some of them are easy. Best hockey team in the NHL. Oh, everyone knows it's the Montreal Canadiens, right? You've got 30 options, but you narrow it down to one really quickly. Oh, that's a good one. How about, what is the best season in Canada? Oh, it's easy. Easy, everyone knows the answer to that, right? Or this one. Who's smarter, you or your spouse? That's an easy one, right? Just be careful how you answer. Multiple choice questions can be hard or easy, but the ultimate easy multiple choice question comes down to this. Would you rather have God for you or against you? Would you rather have God standing in opposition to you or giving you grace and favor? The answer to that question ultimately hangs on the answer to this question. As you think about your life, the general direction of your life, the thrust of your life, what characterizes how you live and how you make your decisions... Is your life characterized by pride or by humility? Which characterizes you? So we come to this passage in 1 Peter 5. Peter's addressing us, saying that the Lord is standing in us, either or towards us, either in opposition or in favor, depending on whether we respond to him in pride or in humility. But as he addresses us and challenges us and commands us, clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility towards one another, I want to ask, okay, first of all, what, what, what are we talking about when we talk about pride and humility? And then where are we here in First Peter? What's he said so far? 
I want to define pride this morning. See, here I go again. I'm copying answers from other people. C.G. Mahaney has written literally the book on humility. And in that, he discusses pride and the nature of pride. And he says pride is a contending for supremacy with God. So God is the Lord, he's the creator, he rules over all, he reigns over all, but when I'm acting in pride, what I'm actually wanting is I'm wanting some of his glory, I'm wanting some of his honor, I'm wanting some of his control, I'm wanting to take charge of my own life and set my own rules and be my own king. I'm contending for the supremacy that's rightly his. Conversely then, humility would be the opposite. Rather than contending for supremacy, it would be, I'm content with God's supremacy. I'm happy, I embrace it, I rejoice in it, I gladly submit myself to his rule, to his reign. So that's what we're talking about when we talk about pride and humility here in this passage. But why is Peter addressing this? Who's he addressing it to? The book of 1 Peter, Peter is writing to a group of people who are undergoing some kind of persecution, some kind of trial in their day. And he's writing to them saying, hey, do you remember how the Lord delivered Israel? And he called them out in the Exodus, and he brought them into the wilderness. And as he was calling them through the wilderness, he called them to himself and said, Listen, you need to be holy as I am holy. And he explained to them in the first place, the reason why I saved you is so I would have a people who reflect me, a people who look like me. Just like I am holy, I am morally pure, I am set apart. This is what I'm calling you to be. You are set apart. You are to be morally pure. You're to live in a way that reflects me. That's what God said to Israel. And Peter is saying, now I'm saying it to you. You are the Israel of our day. You are called to be holy as God is holy, to be a people who reflect your God. And then what he does is he goes on through the book as he teases this out. He says, okay, what is holiness going to look like? How is your practical behavior, your life, going to match what God is requiring? And so he, he, he gives these specific examples for people in different life stages. He says, all of you need to be in subject to the governing authorities. Slaves in particular need to be subject to their masters. Wives need to be submissive to their husbands. Husbands need to live with their wives in accordance with knowledge, with understanding, with compassion, with them as the weaker vessels, as the the more precious, the, the, the more breakable vessels. You treasure them and you honor them. He goes on and he says, elders are supposed to shepherd in this kind of way, like Jesus shepherd. He gives specific commands for specific people in specific roles. You've all got your own ways of doing this, and Peter's fleshing that out. But then when he comes to this verse, when he comes to verse 5, he says, clothe yourselves, all of you. Now he's not interested in specifics about roles anymore. He says, all of you. This is what is to characterize you. Clothe yourselves with humility. So, all of us need to be clothing ourselves with humility. What I want to do this morning, is, or this afternoon rather, is I want to draw out for us from this passage in 1 Peter, these verses, verses 5 to 7, the three reasons that Peter gives why we should be humble. That's where we're going to spend the bulk of our time. And then briefly at the end, we're going to try to follow some of his examples. He gives three examples as well of what humility actually looks like. What the kind of humility he is looking for looks like in the life of a believer. So first of all, the three reasons that he gives for humility. Why these people need to be walking in humility. 
And he needs to give reasons. He needs to begin with reasons. Because his culture was a culture, a Greco-Roman culture, where pride was actually listed as one of the virtues. The philosophers of his day said pride is actually something you should attain, something you should grasp onto and hold onto and treasure. This is noble. Which, interestingly enough, isn't that different than our day, right? You go to kindergarten and you learn about self-esteem and self-respect and think much of yourself and your desires and your passions and your dreams. And it's all about you. Look out for number one. You're the master of your own destiny. So we need to have good reasons to pursue humility as well. If we're going to be so countercultural that we're placing ourselves below other people, we need to have good reasons. Here's Peter's, number one. Because of God's posture. He says, clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another, for God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. The picture here is something like, a, like an infielder in baseball who's, who's postured, he's ready, he's ready to react. If the ball comes to the left, you go to the left. If it comes to the right, you go to the right. God is going to respond, he's going to deal with us according to our pride or according to our humility, with opposition or with favor. If you contend for supremacy, he will bring you low. He will oppose you. What does the opposition look like? This kind of opposition could be any number of things. It kind of falls into two different categories, really. If you are a believer, if you're a Christian, if Jesus is your king and you're living for him, but you're walking in a state of pride where you're in just a hard-hearted phase of your life, whether you know it or not, the Lord will oppose you in, in kind of the, the same kind of way that, you know, if one of my little daughters, or three little daughters, if one of them wants to go play in the street, I'm going to oppose them. I'm going to stop them. If they try to ride their bike without a helmet, I'm going to oppose them. Because as a father, I care about them too much to let them continue down this path because it's dangerous. It doesn't work out for them in the end. Now, in the moment, they don't think about this and say, wow, my father is such a loving and gracious father. I'm so glad he intervened in my circumstance. Say, what is, my dad is mean. It still feels like opposition in the moment. But behind it is the love of a father. On the other hand, if you are not a Christian, if Jesus is not your king, if God is not your father, then the opposition of God that you experience is actually just a foretaste. It's just, it's just a sniff of, of what's to come. The opposition that we experience in this life is a testimony to us of eternity to come where we will be eternally opposed by God. What does the opposition look like? Peter doesn't specify what it looks like could look like any number of things. In 1 Peter chapter 3, just a couple chapters before, he identified this kind of opposition where husbands are not walking in humility with their wives, not living with them according to knowledge, according to understanding. One sense of God's opposition in that context is their prayers are hindered. You ever gone through a season like that? Where you feel like, Man, I'm trying to pray, and it's like my prayers are just, they're hitting the ceiling. They're hitting the walls. They're bouncing back at me. They're not going anywhere, and communion with God is nowhere to be found. It could be seasons where you just go through frustration after frustration, and the Lord is closing every door, and, and you're just thinking to yourself, what is going on? 
This overwhelming sense where your conscience is troubled and maybe you don't know why. You're just being burdened and burdened and burdened. And in some sense, the opposition of the Lord is resting on you, trying to draw out a response from you. He opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Grace is easier to define. Grace is favor. It's favor. It's kindness. It's mercy. It's good where we actually deserved bad. God is being gracious to us. He's being kind to us. The story, or the, the statement that God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Peter is quoting from Proverbs 3.34, but really... Really, he could have quoted from just about anywhere in the Bible because the whole story of the Bible is actually the story of God opposing those who rebel against him but giving grace to those who come to him in humility. So as the psalmist reflects on this reality, in Psalm 18 he says this, For you save a humble people, but the haughty eyes or the proud eyes, the eyes of the proud, you bring down. In Isaiah, at the end of Isaiah's book, after he spends the first 39 chapters, he's got this vision of the glory and the holiness and the splendor of God. And then from there, he moves on to pronounce judgment, woe after woe after woe on God's people who would harden themselves in pride and rebellion. He pronounces all these judgments. And then beginning in chapter 40, he begins to pronounce salvation. And the last whole section of the book is pronouncing this salvation, redemption that God is going to accomplish for his people. And then in Isaiah 66, as he looks back over all of God's purposes in redemption and also in condemnation, he says, what do I see? What is the reality? How is it that this God actually works? This is how he explains how the holy God of the universe works either for redemption or for condemnation. He says this, Thus says the Lord, Heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. What is the house that you would build for me? And what's the place of my rest? All these things my hand has made. And so all these things came to be, declares the Lord. In other words, you can't bring anything to me that I am not capable of doing in the first place. I'm not one standing here in need of you bringing something to me. When we come to God, we're not to come as those who, God, look at what I have to offer you. Those are the people that will be opposed. But, this is what God says, but this is the one to whom I will look. The one to whom I will look with favor, with grace. He who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. But here's the problem for us. You can try right now to be as humble as you want and as contrite as you want. You can tremble as much as you want at the word of God. But you have been walking in pride to this point. You have rebelled against God. You cannot please God even by your humility. So what is Isaiah getting at? Where's the promise? Where is the hope here? You ever notice in the Gospels as you're reading about Jesus, how pleased God is with Jesus? Two different occasions, the voice thunders from heaven. God is declaring that this is my son. He says, this is my beloved son with whom I'm well pleased. This is the one that the eyes of God the Father are on with favor and with grace and to bless. Do you know why? 
When Jesus came and he's offering salvation to people, in Matthew chapter 11, he's preaching this message and he says, you know who doesn't get it? The wise and understanding of the world. The people who think they've got it all figured out. But he actually thanks the Father. He says, I thank you, Father, that you haven't revealed it to them, but you've revealed it to children. And he offers the salvation to anyone who's willing to come like a child. He says this in Matthew eleven twenty eight: 28, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Why can he offer that blessing of God's Sabbath rest? How can he do that? Take my yoke upon you, he says, and learn from me. Learn from him what? For I am meek and humble in heart. You want to know why the Lord's favor was on Jesus? Because he is the one that God said he would look to, the one who comes in humility and contrition, the one who comes to serve. The whole story of the Bible, God opposing the proud and bringing them low, but exalting the humble, was all a prophecy for us to show us Jesus Christ when he comes, when he comes to be humbled by taking on the form of a human, even taking on the form of a servant and becoming obedient, even to the point of death, even death on a cross, so that at the proper time God would exalt him to his right hand and give to him the name that is above every name, so at the name of Jesus every knee would bow and every tongue confess. The one on whom God has favor and blessing is Jesus. And the ultimate battle for pride and humility takes place here. What are you going to do with this? God says, here is my law, and you have broken it. And the only way to receive my blessing is not by doing anything righteous in and of yourselves, but by trusting in the finished work of Jesus when he died for you. Trusting that when he rose from the dead, that was sufficient for taking all the wrath of God to reconcile you to God. So that now we live in his grace and continue to walk in his grace as we live in humility. The pattern that Jesus set for us. The proud hear that and harden their hearts and will know opposition. The humble hear and rejoice and are glad. If you are feeling in your life right now opposed, if you're a Christian, here's what I want you to do. I'm not saying this is the case for you, but I want you to ask the question. I want you to ask the question, could these circumstances be, could they be, my loving Father's gentle way of exposing my remaining pride and steering my life back in the right direction so that he can give me even more blessing and even more grace. One reason to be humble 
is that God stands opposed to the proud but gives grace to the humble. His posture. Here's another reason why Peter says we need to be humble. Because of God's mighty hand. Humble yourselves, he says, therefore, in verse 6. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God. See, this is why it matters if God is for us or against us. Because the hand that reaches down to bless us with grace or oppose us, that is a mighty hand. Like I said, the whole Bible tells this story. This, this phrase, the mighty hand of God, do you know where it finds its beginning? It finds its beginning in a story that ultimately tells the tale of God opposing the proud but giving grace to the humble. It finds its origin in the story of the Exodus. Where Pharaoh, in his hardness of heart, is hardening his heart against God. Contending for supremacy. They're not your people, they're my people. You don't get to say what happens to them, I do. This is about my way, this is about my rule. But God's people humble themselves and cry out and he hears their voice while they are in slavery and he sends a deliverer. And when he commissions Moses to go, this is what he says to Moses in Exodus chapter 3. But I know that the king of Egypt will not let you go unless compelled by a mighty hand. The deliverance that God is going to bring is going to be such a deliverance that you're going to see his power. His power is going to be displayed in his mighty hand that brings deliverance for his people. That becomes a chorus for God's people as they reflect on God's work through the Exodus as he brings plague after plague. As Moses teaches them again and again how they're to remember the story of the Exodus, he reminds them that they were delivered by the mighty hand of God. Towards the end of Moses' ministry in Deuteronomy 3, he looks back over all that God has done. And this is what he says. O Lord God, you have only begun to show your servant your greatness and your mighty hand. You've only begun to show your greatness and your mighty hand. For what God is there in heaven or on earth who can do such works and such mighty acts as yours? God displays power to save the humble with this outstretched mighty hand that he uses to crush the proud. We understand here at this point in redemptive history, this side of the cross, that the story of the Exodus wasn't ultimately about the Exodus. It was telling us about the deliverance that God is going to work for us in Jesus Christ. Where we find there is a better sacrifice. Not a lamb, but the lamb of God. There's a better deliverer. Not Moses, who was a murderer, but Jesus, who is innocent. There's a better deliverance, not out of physical slavery into the wilderness and eventually into the promised land, which could be defiled and lost anyway, but out of slavery to sin and to Satan's ways. Freedom to serve the living God. Freedom to enjoy eternal life. Here is a better salvation that is worked by the mighty hand of God for us. Here's the beautiful mystery and the majesty of God's might in the cross of Jesus. You know where we see the mighty hand of God most clearly revealed as he brings conquest over his foes? In the pierced hands of Jesus Christ. You know where we hear the shout of the mighty hand of God bringing victory, bringing deliverance? 
in the words of Jesus. As he hangs dying, it is finished. In the proclamation, the tomb is empty. He is not here. He is risen. And we behold the mighty hand of God, fully effective for delivering his people. Our God is a God of power, a God of deliverance, a God of conquest. Do you believe that? Do you believe that the God who brought the plagues on Pharaoh and the Egyptians, the God who parted the Red Sea so the whole of the people of Israel could walk through on dry land, the God who raised Jesus Christ from the dead stands before you as one who will either oppose you or give you grace? That the God who opposed Pharaoh opposes you if you walk in pride and unbelief and rebellion. But he's the God who gives you favor and grace if you humble yourself before him. We can be prone sometimes to extremes as humans. We think about the might of God times in history when people have comprehended this, that God is big, that God is majestic, that God is mighty, whether theologians or philosophers, a lot of times what happens is we take this truth, okay, God is big, God is mighty, and then we say, therefore, he is removed. He's too big and too mighty to care about anything that's going on down here. He has wound it all up, and he's made it all work, and now he's just kind of kicking back in heaven somewhere, uh, waiting for it all to unfold somehow. But Peter won't let us go there. He says, yes, we need to humble ourselves because of God's posture, because of God's mighty hand. But the third reason that he gives brings balance to this. He says the third reason why we must humble ourselves is this. God cares for you. Humble yourselves, he says, so that at the proper time he would exalt you. Cast your anxieties on him because he cares for you. This is a God who is mighty, yes, but he is a God who is full of care for his people. Isaiah got this. In Isaiah chapter 40, when Isaiah is pronouncing the deliverance of of the people of Israel from their time in Exodus, he says this. This is how he pronounces the good news. Get up to a high mountain, O Zion, herald of good news. Lift up your voice with strength, O Jerusalem, herald of good news. Lift it up. Fear not. Say to the cities of Judah, behold your God. Listen to how he describes him. Salvation comes with God. How does God come? Behold the Lord God. He comes with might and his arm. You see, here's his arm again. His arm rules for him. Behold, his reward is with him. His recompense before him. He is a mighty God. But listen, in the very same breath, he says this. He will tend his flock like a shepherd. He will gather his lambs in his arms. His arms, his mighty outstretched arms that he uses to crush his foes, he uses to pick up and to carry his weak ones, to bring them to himself. Of course, this too is displayed in the cross. Yes, 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 he's bringing victory and conquest over sin and Satan and death and hell, and he's a mighty conqueror with his mighty hand. But at the same time, as Jesus hangs on the cross, he prays to his Father, as his Father, forgive them, because they don't know what they're doing. Why in the moment of his suffering, in the moment of his battle, why would he cry out, Father, forgive them? Because he cares about us. 
That's why he went. This gripped John. John wrote in his gospel, he recorded these words of Jesus. Greater love has no one than this, than someone lay down his life for his friends. It gripped Paul too, when Paul is caught up in this great theological debate in Galatians 2. His heart was not far from God the more he thought about what Jesus had done for him. He just bursts out, the son of God who loved me and gave himself for me as an expression of that love, as an expression of that care. Our God is a mighty God with a mighty hand who conquers his foes, but he is a God who cares and is gentle and carries the weak. That's so significant for us in our battle for humility. Because in pride... What are we doing? We're contending for supremacy. Why? Why am I trying to take control? I'm trying to take control because I think I care about me more than he cares about me. Maybe he doesn't know what's going on. Maybe he doesn't know that I got a plan worked out for this. Maybe he doesn't know that this isn't the way these things are supposed to go. So somehow the subtle lie gets snuck into my heart that in actuality I care about me more than God does. In the very moment, we are tempted to be proud, to contend for supremacy, to fight against God. This is what we need to do. We need to look to the cross and remember, by looking at that event, remember, he crushed his son because he cares for me. Why would I think he's against me now? When I believe that he cares for me, I will stop contending with him. Because of his posture, because of his mighty hand, because of his care, we must be a humble people. What are the expressions of this humility that Peter gives to us? He says to us, likewise, verse five, likewise you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Here's the first expression of humility. You're subject to your elders. He says you who are younger for a couple reasons. One, because typically elders are actually elder. Uh, that's, that's the biblical norm. That's the pattern. Uh, someone was telling me today, I look like I'm 19 and I shouldn't be a preacher. Okay, I apologize for that. I'm talking about the norm, not the absolute rule. Um, the norm in God's family, in the way God structures his church, is that the elders would be older, would be mature, would be godly men who have walked for a long time with the Lord. And so what Peter's doing is he's writing here, according to the norm, saying those of you who are not elders, be subject to the elders. There's another reason why he says specifically you who are younger. Which I think is this. When Peter is writing to this church, he's writing to a church that is undergoing persecution and and hard times. And so in hard times, there's always this temptation, especially when you're not the leader. There's always the temptation to think, well, I know what to do. You know who's most prone to that? Young men. Well, you know, if they just did this, these old guys, they're out of touch. They don't know what's going on in the world today. They don't know what we need to do. They don't know where we need to go. And it's the sin of young men to think they know everything. So Peter is arguing from the greater to the lesser. Look, I'm telling you, young men, you who are tempted to rise up and to think that you know better than your elders, you be subject to your elders. 
And by extension, all of you who are not elders, be subject to your elders. Now this is interesting, right? Submission. Because submission is not something you can demand. The text does not say, elders, subject the people to yourself. It's not the responsibility of the elders. That rests on the people. The text actually says, submit yourself to the elders. That means you are being deliberate to place yourself under, to come under the submission of the elders, regardless of how well or how poorly they happen to be leading in your opinion. Now that's cool. Because that establishes something for us as well. That as I walk with God and as I live with God, my vertical relationship defined by humility, that is necessarily going to have implications for my horizontal relationships. See, if I'm humble this way, I'm going to be humble this way. I'm going to submit myself to my elders. And the second expression of humility that Peter gives us is this. Essentially, it's service to others. Be subject to the elders and be serving Others. So he says in verse 5, clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility. Clothing is obviously a metaphor. Okay? So some of you young guys, you're tempted to wake up in the morning and start walking around the house with no shirt on. Your mom says, put a shirt on. You can't say, Mom, Peter told me to clothe myself in humility. So that's what I'm doing, okay? You need to actually wear clothes. What he's getting at here is this is what people see when they look at you. This is what comes between you and other people. This is a visible expression of something that is, in some sense, intangible. Because the words that he's using here to talk about humility, clothe yourself with humility, is a compound word. It means humble-mindedness. Clothe yourself with humble-mindedness. So he's using a metaphor of something physical to describe a mental thing. So then we say, well, what does that actually look like then? Because so far, all we've got is images. So what does humble-mindedness actually look like? Because Peter's calling us to make it tangible. That's what the metaphor is getting at. Well, what did Jesus do? What did Jesus teach? The rulers of the Gentiles, they lord it over the, their, those in their charge. But it is not so, shall not be so among you. The greatest of all will be the least of all and the servant of all. And he used himself as an example. He said, even the son of man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. John recounted it this way. When Jesus was going to wash his disciples' feet, he said, the servant is not greater than the master, yet I am among you as one who serves. The greatest example of clothing yourself in humility is in the life of Jesus Christ who comes to serve. And so what he's calling us to here is a humble-mindedness that places other people ahead of ourselves. Other people in your church ahead of you. So let me ask you a question. When you daydream, you still do that? You know the, that, those hours in the late afternoon when you're at work and you're like really tired and you're just having trouble focusing and your mind's kind of drifting off? Or if you're in school and the teacher's really boring and you know you should be paying attention but your mind kind of slips into neutral anyway. Where does your mind go? What kinds of things do you start thinking about? Do you start thinking about ways that you can serve? You daydream about serving? 
No, probably not. <laughs> if, if you do, you're more, much more godly than me. And you're ahead of me because this is where I want to get. See, this is the situation. He's saying, be humble-minded. In other words, find ways to serve those who are around you. But what happens to us is so often we get into this situation in the life of a local church or in our family life or wherever where we say, oh, you know, I would serve. But there's no opportunities. You know, all the committees are filled. All the spots in the worship team are filled. They've got enough greeters. I signed up for something once and no one ever called me. I'll just kind of hang around, wait for an opportunity to serve. That's what happens to us. But where would we be if that's the way God worked? If God was in heaven looking down on humanity saying, oh geez, they got themselves in a real pickle now, wish there was a way I could help. Just they're not asking He didn't wait for us to ask before he came and served us. In eternity past, when God contemplated the universe, before he decreed all things that would come to pass, this is the universe that he conceived of, a universe in which we would rebel against him, but he would come and humble himself and serve us. That's what he daydreamed about. And that's what Peter's calling us to. So here's what I want you to do. I'm going to give you a little bit of a challenge. You can write it down if you're taking notes so that you remember. Your challenge is this. I want you to think, to be proactive in finding a way to serve. I want you to find someone that you do not normally serve and serve them in some way that you do not normally serve. Okay, so you've got to think outside the box because there are all kinds of ways that you are serving already and that's awesome but I want you to be proactive and imaginative. Engage your imagination to find ways to put other people ahead of yourself. Modeling the gospel to each other. Service, serving one another becomes the hands and the feet. It becomes the clothing of humility, the visible part of our lives where other people see our humility. The third expression of humility is this. This is the one that Peter wants to drive home. We must cast all our anxieties on him. Third expression of humility is casting all our anxieties on him. So sometimes we think about these two statements as kind of different statements. We think, humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God. And we think, yeah, okay, cool. I've got to pursue humility. And then we move on and we read the next statement. Cast all your anxieties on him. We think, okay, yeah, second, second statement. And we, we, we put them apart in our minds. But grammatically, what Peter's doing here is he's saying, actually, the humbling of yourself is expressed in your casting your anxieties on him. In recognition of the fact that he cares for you. This is an expression of humility. So that means this. It is absolutely impossible for you at any one point in time to be both humble and anxious. It's absolutely impossible for you at any one point in time to simultaneously be humble and anxious. You have a choice to be proud and anxious or humble and resting in God's providence. 
but we cannot be both. So here's what I want you to do. It is Sunday. It is Sunday afternoon. It is a gorgeous day. And we're relaxed and we're loving our time with the people of God. And we're having a great time. And everybody's relaxed. But I'm going to say something really bad now. I'm going to mention the M word. We're going to talk about Monday. Monday's coming. It is. And with Monday comes the rest of the week. You're back to work, back to the grind, back to the routine. So think about your week that you've got coming up this week in particular. You've got appointments. You've got bills that need to be paid. You've got things that need to be done. The kids need to be taken there. This needs to get done over there. I've got these people coming to work on this on this day. You've got all these things coming up. Now, as you start to think about those things, you know what happens to me? My shoulders do this weird thing. I don't know why. I can't control it. They go like this. I'm getting tense. (laughs) I can feel it. I'm getting anxious as I think about all the things that are going to have to happen this week, all the things that I'm going to have to do this week. That feeling, that feeling is pride. Why? How can we make that connection? How does Peter make that connection between anxiety and pride? Because this, because anxiety always says, I do not believe that God cares for me. I believe that I care for me. Anxiety says, I do not believe that God is mighty enough to care for this situation. And so I need to exercise my strength to care for this situation. Anxiety says, I don't believe that God is actually for me, even if I do humble myself, so I'm going to go ahead and take care of this one because I know that I'm for me. And all of a sudden, all the burden of all the things that have to happen become my responsibility, and it rests on me. You ever have that feeling like you got the weight of the world resting on your shoulders? You know that expression? You know why you feel like that? Because you actually are taking all the weight of the world and putting it on your shoulders. Because you're choosing to disbelieve that God is mighty, that God cares, and that he's for you. Humility casts all anxieties on him. It casts like I cast a fishing rod. Not like most people cast a fishing rod. Most people cast it and they try to bring it back, right? You try to catch something and bring it back to yourself. I don't like fish, so I don't actually want to catch fish. I kind of just throw it out there and hope I don't catch anything and I leave it out there. I just like sitting in a boat for some reason. I'm weird. So I cast, yeah, I'm, I'm more biblical, right? I cast it out there and I don't even want it back. That's what Peter's getting at. He says you cast all your anxieties I heard this story a number of years ago, and it stuck with me. Um, there, was, there was this one crotchety old man who was always worrying and always fretting about everything. And so all his friends that knew him knew when you see him, you, you, you just learn over a period of time. You don't ask him how he's doing. Because you ask him how he's doing, it's going to be, oh, this and oh, that, and I'm worried about this, and I'm thinking about that, and I'm anxious about this. Always a list of stuff. So one time, uh, one of his friends saw him and comes up to him, says to him, how are you? And then thinks immediately, oh shoot, what did I do? (laughs) But the old man says, well listen, I'm doing pretty well. And his friend is shocked. Wow, you know, actually, you look well and you're in good spirits. What happened? The old man says, well, you know, I used to have lots of worries. I used to worry about all kinds of things. Be stressed out about everything. But then, then one day, I found a guy that could actually worry better than I could. And so now we have this deal. I just, I just pay him to do all my worrying for me. The friend thinks, well, that's kind of a bizarre thing. 
Um, but whatever, it seems to be working for you. You're in great spirits. Let me ask you, how, how, how much are you paying this guy? Former warrior replies, I'm paying him $500 a week. Friend gives his head a shake. He says, well, how in the world are you ever going to pay for that? To which the old man says, well, that's not my worry, that's his. He casted all of it. He didn't know. He put it all on this other guy. That's what the Lord is calling us to do. What Peter is calling us to do. To take all of them and cast them and not bring them back. To entrust ourselves to his might, to his grace. So, I want to ask you, are you anxious? Are there any circumstances? I want you to try to be specific if you can. Try to think of a specific circumstance in your life right now that when you think of it, brings you anxiety. I'll give you a second to try to think of that. I want you to keep that in your mind, and with that specific situation in your mind, I want you to ask yourself, Who is better equipped to handle that? Me or God? Who is stronger? I want you to ask yourself this. Who cares about that situation more? Me or God? We're to cast all of our anxieties on him. That means we need to pray. I mean, just getting down to the very nitty gritty of this, it, we, you can't do this without praying, right? So we're called here to be a people of prayer who cast all of our anxieties on him. But if you're like me, sometimes your spiritual life is defective. Sometimes your prayer life is defective. I know mine is. So what happens sometimes is I start praying and I'm like, okay, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to cast all my anxieties on him. And so I go to my journal and I go to, okay, I'm going to list out my anxieties. And I start writing them. The things that I'm nervous about. Things that I'm anxious about. And the more I write, the more I'm starting to actually feel anxious about them. So I think, well, maybe I won't write them. Maybe I'll pray. And so I actually just, okay, I'm not writing. I'm just praying. And so I start listing all my anxieties to God. I start listing all the things that I'm anxious about. And I get the same result. Now I'm just more anxious than I was when I started. What are we supposed to do with that? I think... I think if we do something like this, we'll be in a much better spot. If we begin our prayer by reminding ourselves of the reasons for humility, the reasons why we embrace God's supremacy rather than our own, we'll be in a much better spot. If I begin by praying, God, I know that you were opposed to the proud, but you give grace to the humble. Therefore, if I humble myself and pray, you are going to hear me. And God, I know that it is your mighty hand that delivers. I've seen your mighty hand at the cross. I've seen your deliverance over an enemy that I could not defeat. I've seen your might. And God, I know that you are a God who cares for me. And at the proper time, you will exalt me. You've shown me how much you care for me in the cross. And if I begin my prayer by reminding myself of what God has done for me in Christ... All of a sudden, my God is a lot bigger than my problems. And my anxieties are very small. The whole story of the Bible becomes a story, really, of God opposing the proud but giving grace to the humble. 
Jesus, the only one who had reason to be proud, who had reason to expect worship and adoration and people serving him and glory and honor, came as one who was humble to receive the favor of God, to give to all who come to him by faith. So the question for us becomes, is it worth it? Is it worth it to pursue humility? Is it worth it to submit to my elders whether or not I agree with them on a particular issue? Is it worth it for me to clothe myself with humility and serve my brothers and sisters, even though that means putting people ahead of me that I really would rather be ahead of them? I'm going to walk in humble-mindedness and put them ahead. Is that worth it? Is it worth it for me to cast all my anxieties on God when it means relinquishing control to him? Is it worth it? Is it worth it to know that God is for me and not against me? That should be the easiest multiple choice question you've ever been asked. Let's pray. Father, I do pray that in your grace you would make the gospel clear to us. You would remind us again and again of how you've displayed your power and your care when you crucified your son for us. When you conquered death for us to give us life. I pray that in light of that news, that we who were enemies and deserving of wrath can receive favor and blessing by trusting in Jesus. I pray that you would take that news and humble us to rejoice in to delight in, to embrace your supremacy, and to live with you as our king in all of our life. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.